Chapter Eight of Jacqueline of Golden River by H. M. Egbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Eight, Dreams of the Night. Jacqueline and I were together, the only human beings within a score of miles. We were seated side by side in the sleigh at which the dogs pulled steadily. We glided with slow, easy monotony along the snow-covered trail, through the sparse forest that fringed the ice-bound waters of the Riviere d'Or. Seen through our tinted snow-glasses, the landscape was a vast field of palest blue, dotted with scattered clusters of spruce and pine trees. The mystery of Jacqueline's rescue by Captain Dubois had been a simple one. The young man with the mustache was a certain Philippe Lacroix, well known to Dubois, a member of a good family, but of dissolute habits, just such a one as Leroux found it convenient to attach to his political fortunes by timely financial aid. Having acquired power over him, Leroux was in this way enabled to obtain political influence through his family connections. There was no doubt that he had been in New York with LaRue, and that they had hatched the plot to kidnap Jacqueline after I had been struck down. Fortunately for us, Lacroix, ignorant, as was LaRue himself, that the two ships had exchanged roles and duties, took Jacqueline aboard the Saint Vierge, where Captain Dubois, who was waiting in anticipation of just such a scheme, seized him and marched him at pistol point to the house on Paul Street, in which Lacroix was kept a prisoner by friends of Dubois until the St. Vierge had sailed. The gulf was fairly free from ice, and our journey to St. Boniface, where we arrived on the fifth morning after our departure from Quebec, had been an uneventful one. We had not seen the smoke of the Clare behind us at any period during the voyage, and Dubois had not spared his coal to show the other vessel his heels. He left us at St. Boniface with a final caution against Leroux, and proceeded along the shore with his bags of mail. But first he had a satisfactory conversation with Mr. Danton concerning us. I had given Dubois to understand that Jacqueline had been ill. I was apprehensive that he might question her, and so discover her mental state. But the good man readily understood that an elopement causes much mental anguish in the case of the feminine party. At least this supposition was in line with the romantic requirements of the case, according to all the books that the captain had ever read, and he leaped at the hypothesis. He not only forbore to question Jacqueline, but he explained the situation to Danton, a friendly but taciturn old man who kept the store and post office at St. Boniface. Danton, who of course knew Jacqueline, took the opportunity of assuring me that her father, though a recluse and a misanthrope who had not left his seniory for forty years, was said to be a man of heart and would undoubtedly forgive us. He was clearly under the impression that we were married, and since Dubois had not enlightened him on this point, I did not do so. In fact, his ignorance again aroused in me elusive hopes, 
for if a marriage had occurred, would he not have known of it? At any rate, I should know soon, and with this reflection I had to console myself. Since Jacqueline was supposed to know the route, I could ask no direct questions, but I gathered that the chateau lay about a hundred and twenty miles northwestward. For the first part of the journey we were to travel along the right bank of the Riviere d'Or. At the point where the mountains began there were some trappers' huts, and there doubtless I could gain further information. Mr. Danton had his sleigh and eight fine-looking dogs ready for us. I purchased these outright in order to carry no hostages. We took with us several days' supply of food, a little tent, sleeping bags, and frozen fish for the animals. I must record that a small wharf was in course of construction, and that the contractor's sign read, Northern Exploitation Company. Mr. Danton informed me that this was a lumber company which had already begun operations, and that the establishment of its camps accounted for the absence of inhabitants. In fact, our arrival was almost unobserved, and two hours afterward we had set forth upon our journey. I wondered what Jacqueline remembered. Vague and unquiet thoughts seemed to float up into her mind, as she sat by my side, silent and rather sad. I think she was afraid of the knowledge that was to come to her. God knows I was, and for this reason was resolved to ask no questions, unless they should become necessary. Whether or not she even knew the route, I had no means of discovering. The sun shone brightly, the air, intensely cold, chilled our faces but could not penetrate our furs. Sometimes we rubbed each other's cheeks with snow when they grew threateningly white, laughing to see the blood rush to the undersurface of the skin, and jested about our journey to drive away our fears. And it was wonderful. It was as though we were the first man and woman in the world, wandering in our snow garden, and still lost in amazement at each other. The prospect of meeting others of our kind began to be a fantastic horror to me. We were happy with each other. If we could travel forever thus! I watched her beautiful serene face, the brown hair brought low over the ears to guard them against the cold, the big gray eyes that were turned upon mine sometimes in puzzled wonder but very real content. I held her small gloved hand inside the big sable muff, and we would sit thus for hours in silence, while the dogs picked their way along the trail. When I looked back, I could see the tiny pad prints stretching away toward the far horizon, an undeviating black blur upon the whiteness of the snow. It was a strange situation. It might easily have become an impossible one. But it was a sacred comradeship, refined above the love of friend for friend, or lover for lover, by her faith, her helplessness, and need. We tried so hard to be merry. When we had fed the dogs at noon and eaten our meal, we would strap on the raquettes, the snowshoes with which Danton had furnished us, 
and travel over the crusted drifts beside the stream. We ran out on the surface of the river and made snowballs, and pelted each other, laughing like schoolchildren. But after the journey had begun once more, we would sit quietly beside each other, and for long we would hardly utter a word. I think that she liked best to sit beside me in the narrow sleigh and lean against my shoulder, her physical weariness the reflection of her spiritual unrest. She did not want to think, and she wanted me to shield her. But even in this solitude fear drove me on, for I knew that a relentless enemy followed hard after us, camping where we had camped and reading the miles between us by the smoldering ashes of our old fires. At nightfall I would pitch the tent for Jacqueline and place her sleeping bag within, and while she slept I would lie by the huge fire near the dogs, and we kept watch over her together. So passed three days and nights. The fourth short day drew toward its end a little after four o'clock. I remember that we camped late, for the sun had already dipped to the level horizon and was casting black, mile-long shadows across the snow. A whistling wind came up. The dogs had been showing signs of distress that afternoon, pulling us more and more reluctantly and walking with drooping ears and muzzles depressed. I hammered in the pegs and built a fire with dry boughs, collecting a quantity of wood sufficient to last until morning. Then Jacqueline made tea, and we ate our supper and crept into our sleeping bags and lay down. Three more days, dear, at most, and our journey and our troubles will all be at an end, I had said. Let us be happy together while we have each other, and when our mutual need is past, I shall stay with you until you send me away. That will never be, Paul, she answered simply, but I shall be happy with you while our day lasts. And I thought of the text, For soon the long night cometh. I lay outside the tent trying to sleep, but could not still my mind. The uncertainty ahead of us, the knowledge of LaRue behind, tried me sorely, and only Jacqueline's need sustained my courage. As I was on the point of dropping asleep, I heard a lone wolf howl from afar, and instantly the pack took up the cry. One of the dogs, a great tawny beast who led them, crept toward me and put his head down by mine, whimpering. The rest roamed ceaselessly about the fire, answering the wolf's challenge with deep wolf-like baying. I drew my pistols from the pockets of my fur coat. It was pleasant to handle them. They gave me assurance. We were two fugitives in a land where every man's hand might be against us, but at least I had the means to guard my own. And looking at them, I began to yield to that temptation which had assailed me ceaselessly, both at Quebec and since we left St. Boniface, not to yield up Jacqueline, never to let her go. Why should I bear the yoke of moral laws here in this wilderness, with our pursuing enemy behind? A day's journey, perhaps, 
but leaving me only a breathing spell, a resting space, before I must fight for Jacqueline, or when her own had abandoned her. Jacqueline glided out of the tent and knelt beside me, putting her arms about the dog's neck and her head upon its furry coat. The dogs loved her, and she seemed always to understand their needs. "'Paul, there is something wrong with them,' she said, her hand still caressing the mane of the great beast, who looked at her with pathetic eyes. I had noticed that they did not eat that night, but had imagined that they would do so later, when they had recovered from their fatigue. "'What is wrong with them, Jacqueline?' I asked. She raised her head and looked sadly at me. "'It is I, Paul,' she answered. "'You, Jacqueline?' "'Yes, it is,' she cried with sudden, passionate vehemence. "'It is I who am wrong and have brought trouble on you. "'Paul, I do not even know how you came into my life, nor who I am, "'nor anything that happened to me at any time before you brought me to Quebec, "'except that my home is there,' she pointed northward. "'Who am I? Jacqueline, you say?' The name means nothing to me. I am a woman without a past or future, a shadow that falls across your life, Paul. And I could perhaps remember, but I know, I know that I must never remember. She began weeping wildly. I surmised that she must have been under an intense strain for days. I had not dreamed that this girl who walked by my side and paid me the tribute of her docile faith, suffered and knew. I took her hand in mine. "'Dear Jacqueline,' I answered, "'it is best to forget these things until the time comes to remember them. It will come, Jacqueline. Let us be happy till then. You have been ill, and you have had great trouble. That is all. I am taking you home.' "'Do you not remember anything about your home, Jacqueline?' She clapped her hands to her head and gave a little terrified cry. "'I think so,' she murmured. "'But I dare not remember, Paul. "'I have dreamed of things,' she went on in agitated, rapid tones. "'And then I have seemed to remember everything. "'But when I wake I have forgotten.' and it is because I know that I must forget. Paul, I dream of a dead man, and men who hate and are following us. Was there ever a dead man, Paul? she asked, shuddering. No, dear Jacqueline, I answered stoutly. Those dreams are lies. She still looked hopelessly at me, and I knew she was not quite convinced. "'Oh, it was not true, Paul?' she asked pleadingly, gathering each word upon each indrawn breath. I placed one arm around her. "'Jacqueline, there never was any dead man,' I said. "'It is not true. Some day I will tell you everything. Some day.' I broke off helplessly, for my voice failed me. I was so shaken." I knew that at last I was conquered by the passion that possessed me, 
long repressed, but not less strong for its repression. I caught her in my arms. "'I love you, Jacqueline,' I cried. "'And you, you?' She thrust her hands out and turned her face away. There was an awful fear upon it. "'Paul,' she cried, "'there is somebody who... "'I have known that,' she went on in a torrent of wild words, "'I have known that always, "'and it is the most terrible part of all.' I laid a finger on her lips. "'There is nobody, Jacqueline,' I said again, "'trying to control my trembling voice. "'He was another delirium of the night.' a phantom of your illness dear there was never anybody but me and there shall never be for tomorrow we shall turn back toward st boniface again and we shall take the boat for quebec and from there i shall take you to a land where there shall be no more grief neither i broke off suddenly what had i said my words why, the devil had been quoting scripture again. The bathos of it! My sacred task forgotten and honor thrown to the winds, and Jacqueline helpless there! I hung my head in misery and shame. But very sweetly she raised hers and spoke to me. Paul, dear, if there never was anyone, if it is nothing but a dream... Here she looked at me with doubtful scrutiny in her eyes, and then hastened to make amends for doubting me. "'Of course, Paul, if there had been, you could not have known. But though I know my heart is free, if there was nobody, why, let us go forward to my father's home, because there will be no cause there to separate us, my dear. So let us go on.' "'Yes, let us go on,' I muttered dully. "'But when the issue came, I knew that I would let no man stand between us. "'And some day I am going to tell you everything I know, and you shall tell me,' she said. "'But tonight we have each other, and will not think of unhappy things, nor ever till the time comes.' She leaned back against my shoulder, and held out her hands to the firelight. She had taken off her left glove, and now again I saw the wedding ring upon her finger. She was asleep. I drew her head down on my knees and spread my coat around her and let her rest there. She was happy again in sleep, as her nature was to be always. But though I held her as she held my heart, my soul seemed dead and I waited sleepless, and heard only the whining of the heavy wind and scurry of the blown snow. The wolf still howled from afar, but the dogs only whimpered in answer among the trees where they had withdrawn. At last I raised her in my arms and carried her inside the tent. She did not waken, but only stirred and murmured my name drowsily. I stood outside the tent and listened to her soft breathing. How helpless she was! How trusting! That turned the battle. I loved her madly, 
but never again dare I breathe a word of love to her, so long as that shadow obscured her mind. But if sunlight succeeded shadow... The fire had sunk to a heap of red-gray ashes. I piled on fresh boughs till the embers caught flame again and the bright spears danced under the pines. The reek of smoking pine logs is in my nostrils yet. End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Moline